you have a Bible and you want to read along with us, we're going to take a scripture reading from the book of Matthew chapter 27. The book of Matthew chapter 27. And we'll read verses 62 through 66. It's the very end of the chapter of Matthew 27. Now this is following the brutal crucifixion of our Lord. And Joseph of Arimathea had taken his body and prepared it for the new tomb that it was going to be buried in or placed in. And this is just following those events. And it's reading verse 62 through 66. It says this. Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, And say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto him, You have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. I don't conclude our reading this morning. Sorry for some of the mistakes I made in the reading today. The title of our message this morning is burying Jesus. Burying Jesus. Now the events that we read to you today come really at the end of a plan which had begun some few days earlier. These men came to the civil authorities here in this very end part of the chapter and they're wanting to do the best they can to finish the plot which began some few days earlier. And they remembered something that Jesus had said. That he was, after three days, going to rise again. Now it seems as though, by their words, they never thought it was possible that he would do that. It kind of gets at the heart of the fact that they didn't really believe he was the Messiah or that he had the power over death. So they ask the the civil authority, Pilate, can we go or will you send someone, some officers to guard the tomb? Because what we don't want is for this terrible rumor to start that Jesus has risen from the dead, that he has done something that no other religious figure in history was able to accomplish and thereby continue to perpetuate what they believed was a distortion of their religion. So we come at the end of their plot. And that really shows us just how devoted they were to putting Jesus away, to burying Jesus that even after they had accomplished 
what most people would celebrate and they would come together and they would agree with one another. We accomplished what we tried and started to do. These men were of the sort that they were going to finish it even to the very end that not even a rumor could exist afterward that could possibly harm their interests. This morning, as I began to read these texts earlier in the week, it, as it often does, made me mindful of people today. Because what we find is that though circumstances change and cultures change and languages change, the, the nature of human beings don't change. And the same things that we can peer and see both 2,000 years ago in this text or four, five, or 6,000 years ago in some of the earliest writings known to man, what we'll discover when we look at those readings is that the way people functioned, the way people planned and conspired is no different than what people do today. And there are many people, I would say the most people in our nation, that are avidly trying to do the same thing metaphorically that these men did then. And that is this. They are trying to bury the question of Jesus. There are many things in life where we can not have an answer to a question. There are many situations in life where we can be uh, bailed out by somebody else. If I racked up a huge debt of some sort, I could declare bankruptcy. I could ask you to, to help me or some one of my loved ones might be able to swoop in and, and, and make up for the mess that I had made. So there are times in life, no matter what circumstances we get in, perhaps you're diagnosed with an illness and somehow miraculously there's, some, there's a therapy or there's a new medicine that comes through and is able to help alleviate your illness and your ailment. In almost every circumstance of life, there is a possibility that you can be bailed out of something. But as we consider the person of Jesus this morning, I might put to you who are attending today, what do you plan to do with the man Jesus? Because ultimately, you have to make a decision about the person of Jesus. Nobody can step in on your behalf and make a decision for you. No one at the last moment when you're standing before God in the judgment can swoop in and save you from the judgment of God. No, rather each and every one of us have an appointment with death and that appointment will lead us to the face of Jesus Christ where we'll be forced to answer the question, what did you do with Jesus? These men designed an intricate plot with many different people involved in hopes that they could bury the person of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to go through some of the things that they did. But I'm going to warn you what you already know. They didn't succeed. You see, you can do a lot of things to dead gods. You can ignore half of the world over on the other side of the ocean. 
that serves the Islamic God. You can ignore their traditions. You can ignore their practices. You can look back in time and you can see the paganism that roamed all throughout the world, including on this land before people settled it. You can uh, think of all the other gods and not have to give an answer to that God, but all of those gods have one thing in common that differentiates it to our God, and that is their gods are dead. And our God is living indeed. Here, these men began this by gathering together and getting a plan. You recognize people do that today, right? Many people today have roots in church, roots studying the Bible. They go back to their childhood and they remember grandparents or parents who perhaps brought them to Sunday school or vacation Bible school, or who tried to speak to them about the things of God, about their soul, about the condition of their heart, or what would one day come, or or perhaps trying to prepare them for death. They know who those people are. And often those people in their lives are faithful from their perspective to continuously nag them about the condition of their soul, the condition of their life, or where they stand before God. And so what do people do? They plan. They make arrangements on how they're going to avoid the people of God. How they're going to avoid church. How they're going to avoid being confronted with the deep questions of life. And what the Bible teaches us is in the same way that Satan helped these men, Satan is willing to help people today. You see, it tells us in the book of Luke, That Satan helped these men. That he aided Judas in going and trying to uh, betray our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And let me tell you this morning that if you are determined to neglect the condition of your soul, if you are determined not to consider the core purposes that you have in life, why you were created here, where man came from, and where man is going, you might find it advantageous to live in our culture because what you'll find is a lot of people surrounding you that will help you and a demonic force which you might not be aware of aiding you and trying to plan and avoid answering the things of God. It's scary to me today, and it ought to be to you, that people can go weeks and months and even years. And I've heard even God's people say when they were living in sin before they got saved that they would go long periods of time and never think about God. Satan has craftily hidden in our culture and tucked away every vestige and every sign of God and his presence. Now, students don't get off for Good Friday. It's some other holiday, some religious holiday that they want to encompass all religions and all gods so as not to offend, so as not to bring attention to Jesus Christ. These men... Here in our text, they secretly met. They conspired together to attempt to put an end to the Jesus problem. And they were in part successful. 
They were able to temporarily silence him, weren't they? They were able to temporarily appear as though they were winning. I'm curious. One of the questions I suppose when I get to heaven that I want to ask is, what was Satan thinking during all this time? Was he thrilled about the death of Jesus? Blind to the fact that he was going to rise again? Was he as ignorant as the apostles were, even though Jesus spoke so plainly about his resurrection, even though David and, and the other prophets of the Old Testament foretold about Jesus and the Messiah would come and he would give his life and he would bear the sins of many, but that he would rise victorious over the grave? Was Satan as ignorant as what all the rest of the, of the prophets and the apostles were to what Jesus was really up to? Because it does seem as though that he aided the attempt of these men to subvert our Lord and Savior. You see, they met together and they conspired. Listen, this morning, you may have a crafty plan in your life to conspire so as to avoid any need to address the person of Jesus. But listen, he's not going away. Here we find in the book of Luke. Here was another tactic they had. Oh, this one, I, of all the ones we're going to speak of this morning, I think this is the most prevalent one. They made false accusations against him. I want to read for you a, script, a scripture. They come, they all came, these men that were conspiring, and they went out and they tried to find witnesses. So they bring him before the authorities, the Sanhedrin, that religious group of people. And in the middle of the night, they scramble together. And they get all these witnesses to come. But here was the problem. As witness after witness began to stand up and give testimony, accusing Jesus of blasphemy, accusing him of wrong, trying to convince the Sanhedrin and really trying to convince the crowd of onlookers that he was in fact guilty. Here they came, but the problem was all of their testimonies began to conflict with one another. Here's what it says in the book of Mark, chapter 14, verse 55. It says this, And the chief priests and all the council sought for witnesses against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bear false witnesses against him, but their witnesses agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another one, made without hands, but neither so did their witnesses agree. Oh man, the, the noise today of all the things that are wrong with Christianity and Jesus, if you venture out in the marketplace of ideas and you desire to hear a little bit of what skeptics have to say, let me tell you their noise is deafening. And they've ran through the scriptures and they've come up with every philosophical argument and every political institution and cultural institution seemingly has binded together to point out all the perceived errors throughout the word of God, all the perceived problems with the testimonies and accounts. And the strange thing is that this has been going on ever since the day that Jesus was to be crucified. People have been conspiring together, and yet the problem is this. The testimony of 
God's true continues to ring as a beacon of hope to the world while all the witnesses that have come together to conspire against him, their names and their words have soon been forgotten. People have tried to make a case against the person of Jesus and have failed over and over just as these men did. If you stand in a court of law and there are two witnesses that get up and they're both recounting the same event, it would be considered a terrible blow to either the prosecutor or the defense if the witnesses that they called gave conflicting testimonies. And yet what did these men do? Well, they had an end in mind that they wanted to get to. And no amount of facts and no amount of evidence and no amount of truth was going to prevent them from getting to their end goal. Sound familiar today? Listen, there may be some people here this morning. And what you have determined in your life is I want nothing of God. I want nothing of church. I want nothing of religious people. You know, and that's often, very, very, very often, that is the way that people feel justified in answering the Jesus question, is they look at his followers and they point out all the flaws in his followers. And we could do that for just a moment in this very narrative. Look at the failure of the followers of Jesus. Look at the fear and the cowardice and the betrayal of all of these men who were closer to Jesus probably than any of us will ever be. And if my faith rested upon the willingness of these men to follow Jesus, I would have fallen away like they did many years ago. You see, you can look at us. And what you're going to find, you're going to hear me preach from Sunday to Sunday to Sunday, and I'm going to start to irritate you and my mannerisms, and my tone of voice, and my stories, and my voice will begin to get old. And you might get among us, and you might see very clearly my faults and my sins, and the faults and sins of people around you. And you might look back in your past at people who put forward a religious foot, but you got to see behind the curtain of their lives, and you saw the imperfections, and you saw the hypocrisy, and you saw the deception and the desire to be seen of people. And I come before you this morning with zero attempt to defend those people. They're sinful, and if they knew what was good for them, they would repent before God and repent before you for such terrible behavior. And yet none of that does anything to show Jesus as anything but what he proclaimed to be. These men, they wanted to kill him. And no amount of testimony would stop them in their pursuit of their goal. People today are no different. They have determined God will have no place in their life. This morning, if that is you, I beg you, don't be that way. Don't be that way. Because likely, 
what is preventing you from being a follower of Christ are false accusations that have been implanted in your mind from people with intentions that are not your good. You see, there is this strange caricature of the Christian life that the deeper I get into knowing God and the farther I get in the Christian life, the more I recognize the immense distortion of this caricature. This character goes something like this. When you become a Christian and you start serving God and going to church, the greatest shackles that you could ever feel will be placed upon you. And you can't live free And you can't find happiness and joy. Let me tell you this morning, if there's anything I'm convinced of that's deceived people, deceived in our culture, it's that that is an absolute lie. The farther I get to know the truth of God's word, the freer I feel. And what I recognize are shackles are ones that I placed upon myself from misunderstanding the true message of God in His Word. Oh, don't get me wrong, early in my Christian life, I lived with a lot of shackles, a lot of religiously self-imposed shackles that I just thought were things and ways that I needed to live and things that I needed to do and a mentality that I needed to adopt. And the longer I lived in that enslaved fashion, being driven by guilt and fear to serve the living God, the more I recognized that that voice was an imitating voice of Satan trying to appear as God, trying to distort the meaning of his word in order that I might think that it is God who is trying to shackle me. When really what it was, was Satan deceiving me and God with his still small voice calling out with the sureness of his voice, with the distinct nature and tone of his voice saying, that's not me. Oh, as a Christian, I feel free to worship. I feel free to live life according to the dictates of my conscience. Because my conscience has been changed and made into the image of God. And no longer do I look upon temporal things, but I can look to a place that is eternal. And I can set my heart and set my mind and set my life free to serve something greater, someone greater than the silly things down here. Oh, I feel free this morning as a Christian. And I don't want to go back. I would never, ever, if God would help me, never in my mind to get distorted and Satan to deceive me again. In this moment, I never long for those days where sin is your master. Where the impulses of your mind and heart control you. And you're set to serve one, you. That's what a lost person's heart is set on. That's what they're in bondage to is self. And no matter how hard they strive and no matter what they try to do, they'll always serve self until they're set free. Here, these men, they were determined. They wanted what they wanted. And I come before you this morning and and plead with you, don't be like these men. Be one who seeks truth. 
and right. These men, they plotted carefully. They were aided extensively. And then at one point, it came out of their hands. See, they had to hurry up and get this done. Because the legalistic festival they were going to celebrate had to, we had to hurry up and get purified, and we, we couldn't, couldn't do anything wrong according to this, so we got to hurry up and get this done so we can celebrate the Passover. So they brought it to the civil authorities, that man, that judge, Pilate. I don't know what I think of Pilate. There's a large part of me that feels a lot of sympathy for Pilate. He's put in this difficult position where either way, either his conscience is going to harp on him or the crowd is. And so feeling the peer pressure, Pilate does what many do today. He tries to avoid the question of Jesus. They bring Jesus before him, already beaten and battered partially. And as he is standing beaten before them, he questions them and finds of his own words, he says, I find no fault in this man. And then as they're testifying and witnessing against him, they said, this this Galilean is stirring up people. And he hears the word Galilean and he says, oh wait, this man is a Galilean. He's not under my jurisdiction. And so he sends him off so that another judge will have to answer the question of Jesus. It's what a lot of people do today, isn't it? They're confronted. You know, there's a lot of people in this world, a lot of people that you and I know, they, they have an honest heart. And say they don't, they're not so hardened as these men who are conspiring that they can just say, you know what? I don't care. I want what I want. This is what I'm doing. No, they have a tender conscience. And when they hear truth and when they see innocence, it's a compelling story and it's a compelling message. And they're intrigued by what they hear. And so they give a second thought and they give a second listen. You know, I had a plumber come over to my house when I lived in Indiana right before we sold our house and we got to talking about God and he told me that he was an atheist, but sure didn't sound like one to me. What I mean was he was really asking questions. His leaning, he had heard all these false accusations by groups of men, Richard Dawkins and Neil Grassy to Tyson, he's a, they're both world famous atheists. And he was initially enamored with their logic. But the more we talked, the more he kept saying things like, I've never heard that before. Really, I need, I need to learn more about that. And I saw in him what you see in so many, especially young people. And that is they come off all tough and they've watched a YouTube video or seen somebody's Facebook post that convinced them at the onset of some falsehood. But really down deep inside, there's a lot going on. And there's a lot of uncertainty and instability in what they really believe. 
And so, at a moment's notice, they're given a way of escape. And they can dodge it for a moment, just like Pilate did. But what happened with Pilate? Jesus came back. He came back. And ultimately, the decision rested upon Pilate alone. Now, that's the way it is. That's the way it is in life. When it comes to God, when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to that ominous eternity that lies before every single one of us, nobody can answer it for you. Your faith cannot be your wife's or your husband's or your children's or your parents'. The decision to what to do, it you get no merit that way. One of the themes of the New Testament that Jesus brought was it matters not who, who you came from. It doesn't matter your heritage. It doesn't matter, matter your parentage. What matters is what you do with Jesus. And there is a young generation growing up now that stands in the position of Pilate trying eagerly to push it away. But listen, he'll come back. You'll get to this place in life where life begins to change. You know, that's one of the things about as you get older and you get faced with different situations in life and you begin to age, you recognize that the people that are older that came before you and some of the words that they said aren't as ignorant as what you originally thought they were. That really what it was is that they had passed through many stages of life that you just don't know anything about. And they're speaking on the other side of experience. And as they look back, they're trying to the best of their ability to tell you what you need to consider where you're at now versus where you're at where they are. Oh, I've learned. You can learn a whole lot. You know, let me tell you something about listening to people talk. When you listen to people talk, don't always listen to what they say. Listen to what they're trying to say. There's a lot of people in this world that are not very articulate. They're not very descriptive in in how they express themselves. They don't have the, the ability to do that very well. But if you'll be quiet and you won't think about what you're trying to say back, you'll listen intently to what they mean. You'll find in this older group of people that surrounds you a great deal of wisdom. One of those things, those bits of wisdom is, listen, you may think you can escape Jesus, but listen, there are times in your life where he will confront you and there is nothing else you can do but give an answer. Life might be going along good and you're as happy as you can be. And then suddenly the coronavirus hits. And everything as we've ever known it is halted. And your job is gone. And your provision that was so dependable is in a moment gone and for some gone forever. That spouse that you're deeply in love with, that you have spent maybe decades with, maybe just a couple years. Maybe you're in the heart of life and you're raising children and you're so happy. All of a sudden, they're gone. And you're standing before that casket. And the questions of eternity echo in your mind. 
Listen, friends, those moments, you can't predict the way that you'll be. You can't plan the way that you'll be. You'll be the way that you are in those moments. Pilate here, he has to give an answer to Jesus. If you don't listen to anything else, listen to this, please. So what does he do? How does he make his decision? Well, he brings out this man named Barabbas. He tries to skirt the decision again. Barabbas comes out, a well-known criminal. Pilate thinks he's got it figured out. I'll stack the deck to Jesus' favor. I'll bring out this well-known criminal that nobody would want on the streets, and I'll put this man in whom I find no fault. Much to his surprise, what does he find? The crowd cries out, Barabbas. So he releases him. And then he says, what do I do with Jesus? What do I do? You know, today, a lot of people pushing Jesus. A lot of people pushing Jesus today and making boo-coo bucks doing it. Right, you can... You can monetize anything. A lot of people have. Listen, I don't want you to come to know Jesus so you can come to this church. That's not why I want you to know Jesus. I don't care about the offering plate in the back whatsoever. I don't care what perceived benefits society says that Jesus can enrich your life with. See, this man, Pilate, He stands before the crowd and he says, what do I do with him? And the crowd cries out, crucify him. Bury that man. So what does Pilate do? He comes out before the crowd with a bowl of water. And he washes his hands. And they cry out, let let his blood be upon us and our children. You know, for just a moment, I'll I'll say this as well. You know, something very interesting in this whole story. While Pilate is in the midst of making his decision, God sends a message to Pilate. I love the Lord, don't you? I love the, the intimate care God has for us. Pilate's in the midst of this political upheaval, in the midst of this difficult decision. No doubt his heart is racing. His mind is confused. He's trying to figure all this out. He's tried to send Jesus away. Here he comes back, even more bruised and battered. He's trying to satisfy the crowd. And a messenger comes. And has got a message from Pilate's wife. And his wife says, I've suffered many things In a dream from this man, leave this man alone. I think of carrier pigeons, you know? Carrier pigeon down World War I and before, they trained these pigeons. And these pigeons could put, they they tied to their foot, I think it was, a little message. And it's about that long. That's it. Can't write a book. Can't write even a paragraph. You just get a sentence. Maybe two. Here God sends Pilate, 
this carrier pigeon. This little message. Nobody else would notice it. But it came just where it was supposed to go. And spoke to the heart of the issue. Pilate ignores the message. Like so many people do today. God plants a person in your life. God plants an experience in your life. And here's what we do. We say, chance. That's all it was. Coincidence. That's all that it was. Or we just cast it into this sea of unknowns. When all the time, it was the Lord sending a message meant specifically for your heart. I can think of some of those in my own life. Where somebody said maybe a sentence. They had no idea that of all the things they said. I remember former pastor Brad Wheeler one time was preaching here. And I was listening to him online. And I could tell as he was preaching, it was probably 25 minutes into the message, he was struggling to get it, get it out. And he paused in his message. And he said this. I know I'm struggling this morning to say what I'm trying to. But it's not from lack of effort. You know, that little phrase right there helped me so much. I'm failing to do so, but it's not from a lack of effort. I'm trying the best that I can, but in my weakness, I can't just do it any better. I don't remember anything about a sermon, but I remember that small phrase. And there are many times where I have strived to do something for the Lord and failed miserably. And it was that one sentence that came ringing back. I'm not failing from a lack of trying. Lord, grant me grace to keep going. It was just this little carrier pigeon with a message that has alleviated my heart over and over. God sends Pilate that and he ignores it. And that brings us to our final scripture text. There, these men know that Jesus is buried, he's in the tomb, and they're worried that at the last minute his followers will rise up. And so, they send guards. They cover the tomb with a heavy, heavy rock. They seal it with a Roman seal so that you would know if it were broken. They set guard, they set watch. That's what the word watch meant. To make sure that nothing about Jesus, no rumors could be spread about him. I wonder that night, as they went home, if they thought they had won. We've crossed every T. We've dotted every I. We're good. Day one passes. It's quiet. Day two passes. It's quiet. And then the third morning comes. Before the sun is risen, the sun rose. And there Jesus, 
Listen, when you have the power of resurrection, when you have the keys of death, when all the devils of hell are not even a pinprick, have even a pinprick's strength over you, there is nothing a person can do. There that morning, Jesus rose from the dead. You know, it's interesting. He didn't just appear to one or two people. You know, that's what they were worried about, rumors. He didn't just appear to one or two or three. What is it the book of Corinthians said? I don't want to quote it. Was it 500 men? 400 men? He appeared to four or five hundred people. They saw him. As Thomas did, they saw the, the scars. They saw the holes in his arms and in his, in his feet. They, they knew of the spear in his side. You see, there was a day where no matter what planning and conspiring could be done, God was going to raise Jesus from the dead. And their reckoning was at hand. And that plan that they had to silence and squelch everything about the Jesus movement or the movement of the way, all of it could not be done away with because as Jesus rose from the dead, it poured more gasoline on the fire to where the gospel spread about his rising again and thousands and now millions and even billions of people have become followers and adherents to that risen Savior. They've answered the question of Jesus and have affirmed that in fact he rose again and he lives in our hearts. This morning, there is coming a day for every doubter and every skeptic. And we spoke of it this morning as we were standing on that hillside. There is coming a day where all the avoidant and all the conspiring and all the false accusations about that man Jesus and all the confusion and all the deception and all the monetizing of his name will cease in but a moment's notice and there will be no doubt upon the heart and mind of every person, both dead and, and, and alive. There will be no doubt that Jesus of Nazareth is the risen Savior of the world. And every eye, the Bible says, will see him as he is. And even in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 affirms this. Even those that pierced him will see him. Those men, you know, they, they mocked him at that one point. You remember? There he was, as weak and broken as you can be, battered beyond human recognition, spit upon crushed both body and mind. And they mocked him. And they beat him. And they said things like, who was it that hit you? If you're the Messiah, if you know, tell us who it is. Imagine the terror when the man that they traumatized and martyred in such a fashion is standing in the clouds of glory, 
And imagine the thousands and tens of thousands of angels and the billions of those disembodied spirits that return with him. And you see him with his scepter of power and you see him with the might and all the glory that the world has never seen. Those that scoffed loudest will cry out loudest for the rocks and the hills to hide them. Because the one that they bruised is indeed the Lord and creator of this universe. They buried Jesus. People bury him today, but he rose again. And friends, he's coming back. I pray this morning, if you're a skeptic today, if you're not a believer today, if you're one that finds every reason not to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus, I beg you to reconsider this morning. He lives. He breathes. He's on the right hand of God in heaven. And listen, one of the greatest things that I love to tell people about Jesus today is he hears you and he speaks. He speaks today and he'll speak to you. Won't you humble your heart to hear him this morning?